Section 1 of Essays and Dialogues. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. Essays and Dialogues by Giacomo Leopardi. Translated by Charles Edwards. Section 1. Biographical Sketch. Part 1. Manure with despair, but let it be genuine, and you will have a noble harvest. Ryle. The name of Giacomo Leopardi is not yet a household word in the mouths of Englishmen. Few of us have heard of him. Still fewer have read any of his writings. If known at all, he is probably coupled in a semi-contemptuous manner with other foreign representatives of a phase of poetic thought, the influence of which has passed at Zena. As a contemporary of Byron, Leopardi is perhaps credited with a certain amount of psychological plagiarism, and possibly disregarded as a mere satellite of the greater planet. But if this be so, it is unjust. His fame is his own, and time makes his isolation and grand individuality more and more prominent. What Byron and Shelley, Milvois, Baudelaire and Gautier, Heine and Platon, Pushkin and Lermontov, are to England, France, Germany, and Russia, respectively, Leopardi is, in a measure, to Italy. But he is more than this. The jewel of his renown is triple-faceted. Philology, poetry, and philosophy were each in turn cultivated by him and he was of too brilliant an intellect not to excel in them all. As a philologist, he astonished Niebuhr and delighted Kreitzer. As a poet, he has been compared with Dante. As a philosopher, he takes high rank among the greatest and most original men of modern times. One of his biographers, Dovari, Studio di Giacomo Leopardi, Ancona, 1877, has termed him the greatest philosopher, poet, and prose writer of the nineteenth century. Though such eulogy may be, and doubtless is, excessive, the fact that it has been given testifies to the extraordinary nature of the man who is its subject. In Germany and France, Leopardi is perhaps as well known and highly appreciated as in Italy. His poems have been translated into the languages of those countries, and in France, within the last year, two more or less complete versions of his prose writings have appeared. Biographies, reviews, and lighter notices of the celebrated Italian are of repeated and increasing occurrence on the continent. England, however, knows little of him, and hitherto none of his writings have been made accessible to the English reading public. The following brief outline of his life may, in part, help to explain the peculiarly somber philosophical views which he held, and of which his works are chiefly an elaboration. Giacomo Leopardi was born at Recanati, a small town about fifteen miles from Ancona, on the 29th of June, 1798. He was of noble birth, equally on the side of his father and mother. Provided with a tutor at an early age, he soon left him far behind in knowledge, and when only eight years old he discarded the Greek grammar he had hitherto used, and deliberately set himself to the task of reading in chronological order the Greek authors of his father's library. It was due to his own industry and his father's care that later he acquired a perfect acquaintance with classical literature. In 1810 he received his first tonsure, in token of his dedication to the church. But this early promise was not destined to be fulfilled. Before he was eighteen years of age, Leopardi had attained recognized distinction for the amount and matter of his erudition. The mere catalogue of his writings, chiefly philological, by that time, is of sufficient length to excite wonder, and their nature is still more surprising. Latin commentaries and classical annotations were apparently child's play to him. Writing in 1815 to the Roman scholar Cancellieri, who had noticed one of these classical productions, Leopardi says, "'I see myself secured to posterity in your writings.' Commerce with the learned is not only useful, but necessary for me. He was only seventeen when he completed a task which represented the sum of all his early study. 
this was an essay on the popular errors of the ancients of considerable length first published posthumously in the course of which he cites more than four hundred authors ancient and modern a single extract will suffice to show that his youthful powers of expression were as precocious as his learning though his judgment was doubtless at fault he thus reviews the wisdom of the greeks the philosophy of the ancients was the science of differences and their academics were the seats of confusion and disorder aristotle condemned what plato had taught socrates mocked antisthenes and zeno scandalized epicurus pythagoreans platonians peripatetics stoics cynics epicureans skeptics serenaics megarics eclectics scuffled with and ridiculed one another while the truly wise laughed at them all the people left to themselves during this hubbub were not idle but labored silently to increase the vast mound of human errors he ended this essay with a eulogy of the christian religion to live in the true church is the only way to combat superstition shortly afterwards increasing knowledge which goethe had called the antipodes of faith enabled him to perceive that roman catholicism the antidote which he then prescribed for superstition was itself full charged with the poison he sought to destroy in eighteen seventeen leopardi made acquaintance by letter with pietro giordani one of the leading literary men of the day and a man of varied experience and knowledge in his first letter leopardi opens his heart to his new friend i have very greatly perhaps immoderately yearned for glory i burn with love for italy and thank heaven that i am an italian if i live i will live for literature for aught else i would not live if i could twenty first of march eighteen seventeen a month later from the same source we are able to discern traces of that characteristic of leopardi's temperament which by certain critics is thought to explain his philosophy writing to giordani he expatiates on the discomforts of recanati and its climate and proceeds added to all this is the obstinate black and barbarous melancholy which devours and destroys me which is nourished by study and yet increases when i forego study i have in past times had much experience of that sweet sadness which generates fine sentiments in which better than joy may be said to resemble the twilight but my condition now is like an eternal and horrible night a poison saps my powers of body and mind in the same letter he gives his opinion on the relative nature of prose and poetry poetry requires infinite study and application and its art is so profound that the more you advance in proficiency so much the further does perfection seem to recede to be a good prose writer first and a poet later seems to me to be contrary to nature which first creates the poet and then by the cooling operation of age concedes the maturity and tranquillity necessary for prose thirtieth of april eighteen seventeen the correspondence between leopardi and giordani lasted for five years and it is from their published letters that we are able to form the best possible estimate of leopardi's character and aspirations his own letters serve as the index of his physical and mental state in them we trace the gradual failure of his health the growth of somberness in his disposition and the change which his religious convictions underwent during his twentieth year he suffered severely in mind and body forced to lay aside his studies he was constantly a prey to ennui with all its attendant discomforts he thus writes to giordani of his condition in august eighteen seventeen my ill health makes me unhappy because i am not a philosopher who is careless of life and because i am compelled to stand aloof from my beloved studies another thing that makes me unhappy is thought I believe you know, but I hope you have not experienced how thought can crucify and martyrize any one who thinks somewhat differently from others. I have for a long time suffered such torments, simply because thought has always had me entirely in its power, and it will kill me unless I change my condition. Solitude is not made for those who burn and are consumed in themselves. 1st of August, 1817. His mental activity was numbed by his physical incapacity. The two combined reduced him to a state of despair. 
there is a noble fortitude in the following words of another letter addressed to Giordani. I have for a long time firmly believed that I must die within two or three years, because I have so ruined myself by seven years of immoderate and incessant study. I am conscious that my life cannot be other than unhappy, yet I am not frightened, and if I could in any way be useful I would endeavor to bear my condition without losing heart. I have passed years so full of bitterness that it seems impossible for worse to succeed them. Nevertheless I will not despair even if my sufferings do increase. I am born for endurance. 2nd of March, 1818 Leopardi was now of age, and at the time of life when man's aspirations are keenest. He had repeatedly tried to induce his father to let him go forth into the world and take his place in the school of intellect, but all his endeavors were in vain. Though seconded by Giordani, who some months before had become personally acquainted with his young correspondent during the visit of a few days to Casa Leopardi, the Count was resolute in refusing to grant his son permission to leave Recanati. Giacomo, driven to despair, conceived a plan by which he hoped to fulfill his desire in spite of the paternal prohibition. The following extract from the Count's diary furnishes the gist of the matter, and also gives us some small insight into his own character. Giacomo, wishing to leave the country, and seeing that I was opposed to his doing so, thought to obtain my consent by a trick. He requested Count Broglio to procure a passport from Milan, so that I might be alarmed on hearing it, and thus let him go. I knew about it, because Solari wrote unwittingly to Antici, wishing Giacomo a pleasant journey. I immediately asked Broglio to send me the passport, which he did with an accompanying letter. I showed all to my son, and deposited the passport in an open cupboard, telling him he could take it at his leisure. So all ended. Thus the plot failed, and Giacomo was constrained to resign himself, as best he could, to a continuance of the life worse than death which he lived in Recanati. Two letters written in anticipation of the success of his scheme, one to his father and the other to Carlo, his brother, are of most painful interest. They suggest unfilial conduct on his part, and unfatherly treatment of his son on the part of Count Monaldo. "'I am weary of prudence,' he writes in the letter to Carlo, "'which serves only as a clog to the enjoyment of youth. How thankful I should be if the step I am taking might act as a warning to our parents, as far as you and our brothers are concerned.' I heartily trust you will be less unhappy than myself. I care little for the opinion of the world. Nevertheless, exonerate me if you have any opportunity of doing so. What am I? A mere good-for-nothing creature. I realize this most intensely, and the knowledge of it has determined me to take this step, to escape the self-contemplation which so disgusts me. So long as I possessed self-esteem, I was prudent. But now that I despise myself, I can only find relief by casting myself on fortune, and seeking dangers, worthless thing that I am. It were better, humanly speaking, for my parents and myself, that I had never been born, or had died ere now. Farewell, dear brother. The letter to his father is in a different key. It is stern and severe, and contains reproofs, direct and inferential, for his apparent indifference to his son's future prospects. Giacomo upbraids him with intentional blindness to the necessities of his position as a youth of generally acknowledged ability, for whom Recanati could offer no scope or chance of renown. He goes on to say, now that the law has made me my own master, I have determined to delay no longer in taking my destiny on my own shoulders. I know that man's felicity consists in contentment, and that I shall therefore have more chance of happiness in begging my bread than through whatever bodily comforts I may enjoy here. I know that I shall be deemed mad, and I also know that all great men have been so regarded. And because the career of almost every great genius has begun with despair, I am not disheartened at the same commencement in mine. I would rather be unhappy than insignificant, and suffer than endure tedium. Fathers usually have a better opinion of their sons than other people, but you, on the contrary, judge no one so unfavorably, 
and therefore never imagined we might be born for greatness. It has pleased heaven as a punishment to ordain that the only youth of this town, with somewhat loftier aspirations than the Recanatese, should belong to you, as a trial of patience, and that the only father who would regard such sons as a misfortune should be ours. The relationship between Giacomo and his parents has been a vexed question with all his biographers, who, for the most part, are of the opinion that they had little sympathy with him in the mental sufferings he underwent. The Count has been called despoto sistematico in the administration of his household, and the most favorably disposed writers have agreed to regard him as somewhat of a Roman father. But there does not seem to be sufficient evidence to support the theory that he was intentionally harsh and repressive to the extent of cruelty in his treatment of his children. He was an Italian of the old school, and as such his conduct was probably different from that of more modern Italian fathers. But that was all. In 1819, when his whole being was in a turmoil of disquiet, Leopardi made his debut as a poet, with two odes, the one addressed to Italy, and the other on the monument to Dante, then recently erected in Florence. The following literal translation of the first stanza of the Ode to Italy gives but a faint echo of the original verse. O my country, I see the walls and arches, the columns, the statues, and the deserted towers of our ancestors. But their glory I see not, nor do I see the laurel and the iron which gird our forefathers. Today, unarmed, thou showest a naked brow and naked breast. Alas, how thou art wounded, how pale thou art, and bleeding, that I should see thee thus, O queen of beauty, I call on heaven and earth, and ask who thus has humbled thee. And as a crowning ill, her arms are weighed with chains, her hair disheveled and unveiled, and on the ground she sits disconsolate and neglected, her face hid in her knees, and weeping. Weep, Italia mine, for thou hast cause, since thou wert born to conquer neath fortune's smiles and frowns. O patria mia! Vedo le mura e gli archi, e le colonne e i simulacri e l'erme torri degli avi nostri. Ma la gloria non vedo, non vedo il lauro e il ferro, onde rencarchi i nostri padri antichi. Or fatta enerme, nuda la fronte e nudo il petto mostri. Oimè, quante ferite! Che dividor, che sangue! O qual ti veggio, formosissima donna! Io chiedo al cielo e al mondo, Dite, dite, chi la ridusse a tale? E questo è peggio, che di catene accarche ambe le braccia, sì che sparte le chiome e senza velo, siede in terra negletta e sconsolata, nascondendo la faccia tra le ginocchia, e piange. Piangi, che ben hai donde, Italia mia, le genti a vincer nata, et nella fausta sorte e nella ria. These odes, which represent the first fruits of his muse, ring with enthusiasm. They are the expression of a soul fired with its own flame, which serves to illumine and vivify a theme then only too real in his country's experience, the sufferings of Italy. Patriotism pervades his earliest verse, sadness and hopelessness that of later times. For these two odes, Giordani bestowed unsparing eulogy on his young protégé. Before their appearance, he had begun to regard Leopardi as the rising genius of Italy, and he had not hesitated to say to him, In veni ominum. Now, however, his admiration was unbounded. He thus apostrophized him, O nobilissima e altissima e fortissima anima. He referred to the reception of his poems at Piacenza in these terms. They speak of you as a god. In 1822, Leopardi first left home. Repeatedly, year after year, he had besought his father to permit him to see something of the world. He longed to associate with the men who represented the intellect of his country. With his own fellow-townsmen, he had little sympathy, 
and they on their part regarded him as a phenomenon, eccentric rather than remarkable. They gave him the titles of little pedant, philosopher, hermit, etc., in half-ironical appreciation of his learning. As he was naturally very sensitive, these petty vexations became intensified to him, and were doubtless one of the chief reasons of his unfailing dislike for his native place. In one of his essays, that of Parini Anglori, we discover a reference to Leopardi's life at Recanati, which place is really identical with the Bozizio of the essay. Yet the prophet, who is not a prophet in his own country when living, seldom fails of recognition after death. A statue is now raised to Leopardi in the place that refused to honor him in life. The appreciative recognition he failed to attract in Recanati he hoped to obtain at Rome, but Count Monaldo, his father, long maintained his resistance to his son's wishes. Himself of a comparatively unaspiring mind, content with the fame he could acquire in his own province, he saw no necessity why his son should be more ambitious. Probably also his paternal love made him fearful of the dangers of the world to which his son would be exposed. Of these hazards he knew nothing from experience, and they were doubtless magnified to him by his imagination. Yet, though naturally a man rather deficient in character than otherwise, Count Monaldo was, as we have seen in his own household, a stern, not to say unreasonable, disciplinarian. Only after repeated solicitations from his son, and remonstrances from his friends, did he give Giacomo the desired permission, chiefly in the hope that at Rome he might be induced to enter the church, towards which he had latterly manifested some signs of repugnance. The five months spent by Leopardi in Rome sufficed to disenchant him of his ideas of the world of life. A day or two after his arrival, he writes to Carlo, his brother, I do not derive the least pleasure from the great things I see, because I know that they are wonderful without feeling that they are so. I assure you their multitude and grandeur wearied me the first day. 25th of November, 1822. Again to Paulina, his sister. The world is not beautiful. Rather, it is insupportable, unless seen from a distance. Ever prone to regard the real through the medium of the ideal, he was bitterly disappointed with his first experience of men. The scholar whom he was prepared to revere proved on acquaintance to be a blockhead, a torrent of small talk, the most wearisome and afflicting man on earth. He talks about the merest trifles with the deepest interest, and of the greatest things with an infinite imperturbability. He drowns you in compliments and exaggerated praises, and does both in so freezing a manner and with such nonchalance that to hear him one would think an extraordinary man the most ordinary thing in the world. 25th of November, 1822 the stupidest recanatese he termed wiser and more sensible than the wisest roman again to his father he complains of the superficiality of the so-called scholars of rome they all strive to reach immortality in a coach as bad christians would fain enter paradise according to them the sum of human wisdom indeed the only true science of man is antiquity hitherto i have not encountered a lettered roman who understands the term literature as meaning anything except archaeology Philosophy, ethics, politics, eloquence, poetry, philology are unknown things in Rome, and are regarded as childish playthings compared to the discovery of some bit of copper or stone of the time of Mark Antony or Agrippa. The best of it is that one cannot find a single Roman who really knows Latin or Greek. Without a perfect acquaintance with such languages, it is clear that antiquity cannot be studied. Ninth of December, 1822. He was disheartened by the depraved condition of Roman literature. Everywhere he saw merit disregarded or trodden underfoot. The city was full of professional poets and poetesses, and literary cliques formed for the purpose of the self-laudation of their members. Illustrious names of the past were insulted by the pseudo-great men of the day, whose fame was founded on writings of the most contemptible nature. These circumstances made Leopardi confess, in a letter to his brother, that he had not 
the harbour of posterity and the conviction that in time all would take its proper place, illusory hope, but the only and most necessary one for the true scholar. 16th of December, 1822. He would abandon literature once and for all. But it was only during moments of depression that such words as these escaped him. He loved study for its own sake. Fame was, after all, but a secondary consideration. Nor were men of genuine worth entirely wanting in Rome. Niebuhr, then Prussian ambassador at the papal court, Reinhold, the Dutch ambassador, Mai, subsequently a cardinal, were noble exceptions to the general inferiority. By them Leopardi was highly esteemed. Niebuhr especially was profoundly struck with his genius. I have at last seen a modern Italian worthy of the old Italians and the ancient Romans, was his remark to de Bunsen, after his first interview with the young scholar. Both he and de Bunsen became firm friends with Leopardi. They endeavored their utmost to procure for him some official appointment from Cardinal Consalvi, then Secretary of State, and his successor. But owing to the intrigues, prejudices, and disturbances of the papal court, they were unable to find anything on his behalf. It was an unfulfilled intention of de Bunsen's, later in life, to write a memoir of Leopardi for whom he always felt the highest esteem and admiration. Count Monaldo's wish that his son should become an ecclesiastic was never realized. Leopardi was of too honest a nature to profess what was not in accordance with his convictions. The secular employment that he sought he could not obtain. So perforce he seemed to have turned his mind towards literary work. The drudgery of letters is distinct from the free, untrammeled pursuit of literature. He obtained the charge of cataloguing the Greek manuscripts of the Barbarine Library, and his spirits rose in anticipation of some discovery he hoped to make which might render him famous. "'In due time we will astonish the world,' he writes to his father. He was indeed successful in finding a fragment of the Banius hitherto unpublished. But the glory seems to have been stolen from him, since the manuscript was ushered forth to the world by alien hands. Poor Leopardi, all his hopes seemed destined to be proved elusive. It was time for him to leave a place that could furnish him with no other pleasure than that of tears.' I visited Tasso's grave and wept there. This is the first and only pleasure I have experienced in Rome. Letter to Carlo, February fifteenth, 1823. Already he had begun to steel himself to the shocks of fortune. Suffering and misfortune he could bear. Mental agony and despair were too strong for him. In a long letter to his sister Paulina, he tries to impart to her a little of the philosophy of Stoicism which he had taken to himself. She was distressed about the rupture of a matrimonial agreement contracted by the Count between her and a certain Roman gentleman of position and fortune. Leopardi thus consoles her. Hope is a very wild passion, because it necessarily carries with it very great fear. I assure you, Paulina mia, that unless we can acquire a little indifference towards ourselves, life is scarcely possible, much less can it be happy. You must resign yourself to fortune, and not hope too deeply. I recommend this philosophy to you because I think you resemble me in mind and disposition." 19th of April, 1823. Four years later, Leopardi confesses the insufficiency of his own remedies. Writing to Dr. Puccinotti in 1827, he says, I am weary of life and weary of the philosophy of indifference, which is the only cure for misfortune and ennui, but which at length becomes an ennui itself. I look and hope for nothing but death. 16th of August, 1827. In May, 1823, he left Rome and returned to Recanati. The succeeding ten years of Leopardi's life were, during his intervals of health, devoted to poetry and literature. He had passed the Rubicon of his hopes. Henceforth he studied to expound to the world the uselessness of its own anticipations, and its essential unhappiness. His bodily infirmities increased with years. His frame, naturally weak, suffered from the effects of early over-application. His eyes and nerves were a constant trouble to him. 
to obtain what relief was possible from the change of air and to remove himself from recanati which he detested increasingly leopardi went to bologna florence milan and pisa wintering now at one place now at another from family reasons his father was unable to supply him with sufficient money to secure his independence consequently he was obliged to turn to literature for a livelihood the publisher stella of milan willingly engaged his services and for several years leopardi was in receipt of a small but regular payment for his literary labors he compiled crestomathies of italian prose and poetry and made numerous fragmentary translations from the classics a commentary on petrarch to which he devoted much time and care is in the words of saint beuve the best possible guide through such a charming labyrinth as he said of himself mediocrity is not for me so in all that he undertook the mark of his genius appeared at florence leopardi was honored by the representatives of italian literature and culture who there formed a brilliant coterie coletto was desirous of his cooperation in the history of naples with which he was occupying the last years of his life the antologia and nuove ricogliettore reviews were open to contributions from his pen giordani nicolini caponi and gioberti amongst others welcomed him with open arms to these his tuscan friends he dedicated his canti in eighteen thirty with the following touching letter my dear friends accept the dedication of this book herein i have striven as is often done in poetry to hallow my sufferings this is my farewell i cannot but weep in saying it to literature and studies once i hoped these dear resources would have been the support of my old age pleasures of childhood and youth might vanish i thought and their loss would be supportable if i were thus cherished and strengthened but ere i was twenty years of age my physical infirmities deprived me of half my powers my life was taken yet death was not bestowed on me eight years later i became totally incapacitated this it seems will be my future state even to read these letters you know that i make use of other eyes than mine dear friends my sufferings are incapable of increase already my misfortune is too great for tears i have lost everything and am but a trunk that feels and suffers it is scarcely wonderful that under such circumstances his philosophy should fail him a code of ethics however admirable intrinsically has but cold consolation to offer to one whose life is prolonged by pain leopardi at one time allowed the idea of suicide to rest and almost take root in his mind he describes the incident a great desire comes into my mind to terminate once and for all these wretched years of mine and to make myself more completely motionless but he was of a nature noble and strong enough to resist such temptation. End of section 1